The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staten in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, earlier this year, the China Daily newspaper, that's one of the, uh, the propaganda sheets that comes out of Beijing, they had a headline uh, which I thought was very interesting and really germane to our conversation today about Israel. China-Israel ties bloom spectacularly. <laughs> and uh, you know, leave it to the editors at China Daily to, to not go sparing on, on words there. Uh, and they really laid out a litany of all the accomplishments this year and even in previous years leading up to where they think China-Israel ties are today. They highlighted big construction projects like the $1.7 billion port of Haifa, that is run by Shanghai International Port Group. Previously, and this wasn't in the article, there's been a lot of investment by Chinese tech companies, including Alibaba, who were investing heavily in Israel's tech centers in Tel Aviv and setting up R&D centers all around the country. And then Israel also stayed on the sidelines for a long time of a lot of the contentious issues surrounding Xinjiang and China's other territorial issues, which is exactly what Beijing wanted. And for years leading up to 2022, there was always this sense, I mean, again, for the past four or five years, that these are the two oldest continuous civilizations on the planet. They had a lot in common. They were very interested in each other's trade and tech, especially as the Chinese were expanding in the Middle East and in the Arab world, and as Israel's relations were broadening in the Arab world through the Abraham Accords, there was just so much potential. Well, in just the past six or seven months, times have changed a lot. Ties between the two countries have become increasingly frosty. Uh, in 2021, just last year, Israel refrained from signing a joint statement led by the French that expressed concern over human rights in Xinjiang. But then just this June, they flip-flopped and Israel signed a declaration at the UN Human Rights Council denouncing China's actions in Xinjiang. Also in June, Alibaba announced that it was going to close that Israeli R&D center I mentioned, and it laid off all of its 50-member team. And nothing speaks to the deteriorating ties between the two countries more than the incident that occurred back in May when Jerusalem Post editor-in-chief Yaakov Katz interviewed Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu. Not surprisingly, that sent the Chinese ballistic. The day the story was published, a top Chinese diplomat at the embassy in Tel Aviv apparently called Katz, and now I'm going to quote from the Post tweet on the issue, and apparently, according to the Post, threatened to downgrade relations with Israel and sever ties with the Jerusalem Post unless the Post delete an interview. And, and that's so fascinating because it speaks to the cluelessness that the Chinese have about a free media in a society like Israel's. Again, misunderstanding the role of media. And boy, it really pissed off a lot of people in Israel. And I just want to really get quickly to Katz's reply because it was priceless. And he wrote on Twitter, I'm supposed to take down the story? Needless to say, 
the story ain't going anywhere. So that was really interesting. And, and a lot of this behind the scenes is the U.S. The U.S. was never comfortable with Israel's warming ties with China uh, over the past 10 years and most recently, and has put a lot of pressure on Jerusalem to put some distance with Beijing. And that has really frustrated the Chinese. Axios reported last month that Liu Jianchao, who heads the Chinese Communist Party's International Affairs Department, apparently sent a warning to Israeli ambassador to Beijing, Irit Ben Abba, you know, cautioning him not to be swayed by U.S. pressure or else risk further damage to the relationship. So, Kobus, we have come a long way from just last year. And we did a show earlier this year on China-Israel ties that was a lot more optimistic. We've talked about this in previous shows. Uh, we're in a different place right now. And in part, this is what it looks like when countries say they don't want to get caught up in the middle of the spats between the United States and China. This is what it looks like. Yes, you know, kind of, um, obviously, in, in some respects, Israel is the classic small country kind of caught up in the middle of, of China of, of two superpowers. In, you know, kind of in, in some other views, China is, in some other ways, Israel isn't like other small countries at all, in the sense that, you know, kind of it has a special relationship with the United States, that brings a lot of protection and a lot of a lot of pressures. So I think there's a lot that other countries can learn from how Israel navigates the pressure between the two. But I think there's also a lot, a lot that 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 we can unpack on, you know, about China's kind of ambitions in in the Middle East and some some of the some of the kind of barriers to those ambitions. Let's get some perspective now from someone who knows this better than almost anybody out there. Alexander Pevsner is an adjunct lecturer at the Lauder School of Government, Diplomacy, and Strategy at Reichman University near Tel Aviv, and he is one of the veterans in the Israel-China watching space. Alex, great to have you on the show for the first time, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobas. You are my heroes for the work that you do, and it's an absolute pleasure to join you. My goodness. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. We're equal admirers of your work as well. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. We want to talk about the Taiwan issues. We want to talk about Iran, all the pressure from the United States. But I think let's set the stage a little bit here. And I've got a two-part question just to help us frame the discussion. I laid out a bunch of the tensions and the problems it seems that ties have, have become frostier and chillier in the past year. Help us understand where we are today in this relationship, and then tell us how we got here. Right. So um, the threats of the Chinese DCM in Tel Aviv notwithstanding, relations with, uh, with Israel have not been uh, downgraded between China and Israel, so we're, we're fine there. Yeah, you know, Chinese diplomats used to be known for their suaveness, but I suppose that's not the case anymore, unfortunately. So you raised a lot of issues. I mean, this is, you know, Israel-China relationship, even though there's such a discrepancy in size, are actually quite multifaceted and very interesting. In Israel, when we talk about U.S., uh, we talk about Israel-China relationship, we always talk about the trilateral, you know, Israel-U.S.-China relationship because the U.S. factor, you simply cannot ignore it. And, you know, the U.S. has been unhappy with Israel's ties with China for not for the past decade, but ever more, you know, since the late 90s, actually, you know, uh, going back to the Falcon deal and uh, etc. But I would like to start actually with a bit of history. I know it's not a history podcast, but I think history here is important. 
Because, you know, just like Cobos mentioned, you know, Israel is a small country, but it's an, uh, you know, an ally of the U.S. But if you go back, Israel's roots is actually, I don't know if you can call it a global south country, but definitely a socialist country. You know, 1948, when Israel was established, it was, you know, firmly a socialist country, at least in terms of, you know, its relationships, uh, in terms of internal policy, right, social policies, economic policies. And even though from 48, 49, uh, you know, Israel wanted to build good ties with the U.S., one of the reasons of which was, you know, the U.S. jewelry, uh, which, you know, helped uh, the young state during its establishment. And because Israel, since its founding in May 48, was a democracy. You know, we never experienced, uh, you know, military rule or junta or th stuff like that. We were always a democracy. So you can say Israel was on the Western side, but nevertheless, because of our founding fathers, like David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, Moshe Sharet, the first foreign minister, they understood the importance of Asia. And you have really early writings by both Ben-Gurion and Sharet saying, we need to build relations with China. We need relations with India because Asia is the future. So that much was always clear. Now, in order to look at the importance of history, I'll quote uh, a recent study. So Pew, Pew Research recently did a study, I think it was in July, uh, surveyed uh, views of US and China, okay, of 19 countries, okay. Now, Pew does not always include Israel, unfortunately. So, the previous time when Pew included Israel was in 2019. That was be before, remember, BC, right, before corona, before uh, pandemic. Listen to this, you have to hold on to your chair, a full 66% of Israeli population, 66% viewed China positively, okay? That's probably higher than in China, okay? This is an astounding figure. I mean, it's almost, you know, it's almost bizarre. So, for three years, we had no surveys, and Pew did surveys, but not in Israel, and we have a new survey from, from Pew, where it shows that out of 19 countries, right, so most countries uh, see U.S. Uh, more favorably, of course, compared with China, and uh, we know that China's standing in the world as, you know, deteriorating in general. But if you look at the Israel numbers, 48% of Israelis view China favorably, and a higher percentage, over 70%, see uh, China's influence is growing. Okay? 48%. Now, you can say, well, 48% is a big drop compared with uh, 66%, and it's true. And, you know, you probably have to blame COVID for that. But 48% is still the highest of all these 19 countries, with the exception of Malaysia and Singapore, okay, with large, you know, ethnic Chinese populations, right? So 48% positively of Israelis view China positively, that's a still a very, very high number. And there are several reasons for that. So first of all, you know, the understanding of Israel that we are in Asia, and we have to be, you know, we have to look at Asia. Secondly, we're lucky that we ha don't have China as a neighbor. There's, you know, no border issues. You know, we're very different from Southeast Asia or other countries. So no issues, uh, no issues there. And, you know, Israelis are pragmatic, but I think, uh, like everyone else, you know, our attention span is very limited. So, you know, we are, the main threat is Iran. Uh, the second threat, Iran, okay? And, you know, China may be number 17. So, you know, for us, the main issue is our position in the region, you know, and, you know, you mentioned the Abraham Accords, that's a, you know, very big boost to Israel standing in, uh, in the region, whereas, you know, 
Iran's aggressive policies uh, are the main threat. So, you know, for the U.S., China is the main issue. For Israel, it is not. And, you know, there are also issues, you know, you, you frequently talk in your China Africa podcast, the Global South podcast, you talk about how China is viewed in other countries. So there are a lot of issues uh, that are a thorn in these bilateral relationships, which absolutely, completely not existent in Israel. So, for example, in some countries, uh, when the Chinese come in to do investment, they bring their own workers, right? Israel has no issue. Because, you know, Israel is a developed country. Nobody works to work, Nobody wants to work in construction. Okay, we import construction labor, not just from China. By the way, we also have agreements with China. We from Romania and from, you know, agriculture workers from Thailand, things like this. So, you know, China is not taking any jobs here. Okay. In countries like the US, like Australia, you have the diaspora, right? The Chinese diaspora. And if you have Chinese diaspora, then you have concerns of Chinese undue influence, either, either you know, like the bribery scandals in Australian politics or buying up uh, Chinese language publications uh, like in the U.S., etc. There is no Chinese diaspora in Israel. So there's no, no problem. There's no, there's, there's very, China can influence Israel in very limited ways through high diplomacy, but not, you know, on the ground. So there's a lot of these things that are, you know, kind of disturb China's relationship with other countries, but not uh, not so uh, with Israel. And Israeli politics toward China are basically pragmatic. It's not an ideological issue. It never was, and I hope it will never be ideological, like it's in the U.S. or in the U.K. with the new Prime Minister Truss. Even though China, Israel is a, a highly advanced country and high tech and you know startup nation and everything that, we have an enormous backlog of infrastructure okay israel is i mean 40 years behind the rest of the world in terms of infrastructure so chinese companies coming and you know building new railway lines or light rail etc etc that's a net net win for for israel and china there's absolutely no you know problem with that unless it's let's say some project that is close to some you know sensitive military installation which is a separate issue but you know, you wouldn't want any other countries to be next to your sensitive military. It's not just a China issue, right? So, you know, some of the big deals that, that Eric touched on um, in, in the intro started during the, the Netanyahu administration. So I was wondering what, what Benjamin Netanyahu was hoping to achieve by this kind of rapid, rapid increasing of, of, of engagement with China. That's a very good point. So Netanyahu has visited China in 1998, actually, during his first tenure, but it was not very significant. The real sort of uptick that you and Eric were talking about in China-Israel relations started uh, in 2012-2013, and that's a combination of several factors. First of all, uh, the new administration, the Obama administration, which, you know, Israel and uh, the U.S., there were issues, let's put it this way, right? The Obama administration said they want to put daylight between us, uh, between them and, and Israel. So that's one factor. Second of all, in 2012, you have a new guy in charge in China, Xi Jinping, okay? And we, we that's a new, it's a new leadership level, but it's also a leadership that did not uh, sort of go through the previous difficulties between Israel and China. So, for example, the Falcon deal, okay, the, the radar system that Israel wanted to sell to China and was stopped by the Americans. So that was uh, Jiang Zemin and, you know, Hu Jintao. Xi Jinping sort of wanted to turn on a new slate. Also take into account that in 2011, I think, there was the new five-year plan, the 12 five-year plan, which really identified 
innovation and technology as the new economic development model for China, right? After the global financial crisis, after all the export markets of China dried up. And so the Chinese survey the field and they see Israel, you know, almost untapped. Because before the well, there's not a lot was going on between Israel. Almost no tourists, no nothing. So the Netanyahu government saw an opportunity to boost not strategic relations, not political relations, but economic relations with China. Okay, And so you see, so for example, I remember 2011, we had something like 20,000 Chinese tourists in Israel, something like that. I mean, statistical error. You know, 2019, the last year before the pandemic, we had 160,000, okay, eight-time increase. And that's, you know, the Israeli government worked very hard to invite Chinese airlines to come to Israel. That was a major issue. You know, Israel worked very hard to convince Hainan Airlines and then other airlines to fly to Israel. Uh, visa, you know, easy, ease of getting visa, etc., etc. And then Netanyahu saw an opening and he wanted, you know, investments to open China for Israeli businesses, but also investments from, uh, from China. And, you know, I suppose you know, Netanyahu felt, you know, confident of doing that because, you know, there was nothing... Uh, positive uh, flowing from the uh, Obama administration. And like I said, there's an opening. So, you know, Israel has its own construction firms, but nothing, nothing even close, coming close to these, these Chinese giants who, you know, build all over Africa. So, you know, the Chinese companies are very competitive here and, you know, building much, much needed infrastructure. I mean, if you go to Tel Aviv now, all of Tel Aviv is dug up. I mean, simultaneously, five light rail lines simultaneously because that's how bad the situation is you just have to do everything at the same time and are those all being so, built uh, by the chinese or are they being built by various contractors not just the chinese of course but the chinese are major major participants in all infrastructure in israel mostly in construction not in operation mostly in construction because this is the you know the chinese can build fast and with high quality and with you know good price so if this is the case that, again, construction and there is this solid relationship and there's, again, it's not a primary security concern for the Israelis the way it is for the Americans, then why would Liu Jianchao from the CPC warn the Israeli ambassador about the deterioration of ties, what we've seen with Alibaba, what we've seen with, again, U.S. influence on the Israeli government to put some distance between the two, between the, with the Chinese, Again, I'm trying to get a, a sense of where we are today. Are we worse off today than we were last year and the years before? Or are these just kind of insignificant little wrinkles in the relationship that every country has with a power like China? That's a good question. So no doubt that we are worse off and no doubt the U.S. factor in this triangle is, uh, is significant, but it's not the only factor. So like I said, you know, there are not so many public spats between Israel and China. You know, you quoted China Daily. If you look at Chinese media, which I do every day, if you look at the bilateral ties, so Israel-China ties are blossoming and everything's fine. You don't see any problems in the Chinese media. Another separate issue, and that's the Palestinians, but that's a separate issue. If you look only at the you know, Israel-China ties. Now, what happened with uh, you know, the U.S. pressure and uh, Liu Jianchao? So I think 2018, 2019 were probably the peak years of Israel-China ties and has been some cooling uh, since then. But not everything actually is gloomy, okay? And I'll get to that. But let's, let's see what happens. So first of all, you know, 2013, 
Netanyahu went to China. Very successful visit. 2017, he went again. Israel and China signed this comprehensive partnership in innovation, which is one of these uh, bumper stickers that China likes to give to its bilateral relationship, uh, which is you know an acknowledgement that what China needs from Israel is technology and uh, innovation. And up until 2016, 2017, you know, probably the Obama administration was not particularly happy, but they were not sort of, you know, aggressively unhappy. I mean, Israel, after all, joined the AIIB as a founding member in 2000, uh, 2015, you know. So Israel did notify the U.S. that, you know, guys, we're going to join the AIIB. Yeah. Everything was fine. Now, in comes Trump. And Trump really uh, moves the dial on U.S.-China relationship and in the process influences everybody else, uh, Israel, uh, Israel included. I suspect that Netanyahu, I mean, I'm not in the government, I don't have any particular insights, but I suspect that Netanyahu government was hearing what the Trump administration was saying and and sort of, you know, marching ahead with uh, our relationship with China. 2018, we had Wang Qishan, Chinese vice president uh, in Israel for for an important uh, visit. This is actually, maybe it's worth dwelling on. So Israel and China has a dialogue, strategic dialogue. It's called the Innovation Summit. Okay, it started 2014. Every year, once in China, once in Israel. So it was, in, on, the, on the Israeli side, it was headed by the Prime Minister, which was Netanyahu all throughout these years. He was in, in power for like 13 straight years. On the Chinese side, it was the Deputy Prime Minister. Now, you know, China has four Deputy Prime Ministers. That was uh, Liu Yandong, the only lady in the Politburo. In 2018, China unilaterally upgraded its representation in this mechanism, okay, and sent Wang Qishan, vice president, who is basically number eight in the Chinese hierarchy, okay. Israel did not ask for that. It was the Chinese saying, okay, Trump is in town. We have to do something to make uh, Israel not forget about our uh, existence. But, you know, eventually the U.S. pressure started ramping up. You know, you had Pompeo coming here in the middle of the pandemic warning Israel against uh, Chinese investment. It was, in some areas, it was a little bit overplayed, you know, because uh, the Americans were very concerned about 5G. Even if America did not exist, Israel would not have let Huawei build its uh, 5G. We have no Chinese telecom infrastructure in Israel, not even 4G. Okay, so Huawei was never a concern, but Americans were concerned. But, you know, eventually U.S. pressure kept ramping up. And in 2019, uh, Israel set up uh, a screening mechanism for foreign investment, which Israel did not have previously, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's a good idea to have it anyway, not just uh, for China purposes. And, and that's like the CFIUS in the United States, right? Right. It's CFIUS, but it's, uh, it's CFIUS uh, sort of on its uh, in, d- in death throes. You know, it's, uh, it's a very weak, very, very weak uh, CFIUS. First of all, it's, the mechanism is voluntary. Secondly, it looks only into infrastructure and not high tech, which is the, yeah, that's, that's the... But that's weird for an economy like Israel. Isn't that bizarre that it doesn't look in tech? Yeah, so, right. So there was, there was a big discussion, a in big internal discussion. You know, first of all, who would lead that, right? Because if the finance people lead that versus the security people leading that, you know, that would, that would bring about a different result. 
So it's coordinated by the National Security Council, but I think the actually the finance people are more, you know, the stronger part, I think. I think the issue is that high tech is private. You know, all of high tech Israel is just private. You know, you cannot really force them to, you know, to be regulated. Whereas infrastructure, the, you know, the government involvement is much, uh, much heavier. So it's easier. But I'm not excluding the possibility that eventually this will include also uh, technology because of American pressure. But it's not just American pressure. Uh, it's also an issue of, you know, Israel and China, we both like to pretend that our relationship is, uh, you know, rosy and there are no issues and everything's hunky-dory. But for years, China, even though it's been, you know, rolling up the carpet for our ministers, government ministers, it's been voting against Israel in the UN in any in every possible forum in the UN. I mean, aggressively anti-Israel. And, you know, push came to shove and Israel just said, okay, this is this is enough. Okay, we, you know, at a certain stage, Israel said to China, we want us, if not vote for us in the UN, then at least abstain and not sort of automatically vote uh, against, against us. There was some improvement, a small improvement, but not a major one. So, you know, Kobus mentioned and you mentioned the uh, Xinjiang issues. Uh, at least in one case, it was not about Xinjiang. It was about, you know, getting back at the Chinese for their uh, May 2021 vote against Israel around Gaza, the latest the latest conf- conflagration in Gaza. And, you know, the Chinese even in May last year, I think China was the president of the Human Rights Council, if I'm not mistaken. And they used this podium to sort of convene a special meeting on Israel and Gaza. So Israel said, okay, we, you know, two, two, two can play that game, you know, and uh, voted. Uh, so I, I actually, I even made a list of, uh, you know, voting. So June, 2021, that was the first time Israel uh, joined the, you know, the Human Rights Council statement on, on Xinjiang. We did abstain in uh, October, but then we voted again for a statement in uh, June, 2022. So. Look, to be fair, the Xinjiang issue is not a matter of internal politics in Israel like it is, you know, somewhere else in Europe or in the or in the US. But uh, Israel, I think, is still trying to sort of balance a little bit to show China we can vote against them just like they can vote uh, vote against us. Can you give us some, while we're on the, the Xinjiang issue, can, can you give us a, uh, a kind of a... a like your impression of how the Xinjiang issue is being discussed internally within within Israel. Like how, you know, kind of how are different kind of, because of course Israel is such a diverse society with such a broad range of, of, of political views. How is the issue being framed in, in, in the, the domestic context of, 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 of Israel's own issues by, by Israeli citizens themselves? That's a very good question. So uh, Xinjiang issue is simply not... Uh not on the agenda of the mainstream Israeli media. You know, it's not it's not like in the US. This is something what a lot of Americans' friends just just don't get it. It's not doesn't get that play like it gets uh, you know, in Europe. And again, it's not about it's not just because Israelis don't care, it's just that you know, it's very far away. Well, let's be honest For that example, Israel has a very complicated relationship with human rights and Muslim populations. And so this makes it complicated for them to care because then how is it possible they're seen to be caring about Muslim human rights in China and yet 
there's well-documented problems with Israel's behavior in the occupied territories in the Palestinian areas as well. I mean, that's well-documented. So it's also an issue. Right. It's, it's also an issue. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure this is the only reason. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously. Uh, it just makes the optics very complicated for Israel if it took a big stand on this. Perhaps. Look, you know, we, even though we're heading for our fifth election in four years, unfortunately, uh, our last government, which was the first government in many, many years without Netanyahu, actually had an Arab party in the coalition for the first time since the establishment of the state of Israel. And not any sort of your middle-of-the-road Arab party, but an Islamist party, okay, an Islamist party. You know, we have Arab members in a, in a parliament, we have Arab judges, so, you know, the issue of, you know, the territories of Judea, Samaria, and Gaza, that's as much an Israeli problem as it is an internal Palestinian problem. And, you know, we have to be fair about that, you know. The split in the Palestinian leadership, the consensus, I, I think most people in Israel would support a certain version of a Palestinian state, but there's also consensus that there's, it's irrelevant, under the current Palestinian leadership. I mean, you have you have a murderous Islamist regime in Gaza, and you have a corrupt Palestinian leadership in, in Ramallah. It's a, it's a bit of a problem. But but I have to say, like I said, it's, it's not just about, you know, that we feel uncomfortable. It's just that you want to know how much, how many times Xinjiang is mentioned in Israeli media. First ask how many times China is mentioned in Israeli media. You know, this, it's not, uh, like I said, you know, our main sort of concern is Iran and the region and, and, and the U.S. and Europe, and only then Xinjiang. I, have, I haven't seen that, for example, the Xinjiang issue is, an, uh, is a problem in the Arabic language media in Israel. You know, it's, it's just the focus is much more. You know. Well, let's turn our attention to Iran, given that that is a priority for Israel. The Iranian-Chinese relationship is one that to use the words of uh, of China Daily, I think it will let me go back and seeing it's uh, blooming spectacularly. And I think that applies as well to uh, Tehran Beijing's ties over the past few years. There was the big $400 billion, you know, supermarket deal that everything was flown into it, you know, as part of it. And it, no one believes that that's going to be a real $400 billion deal. But what it does symbolize, though, is the ambitions for this relationship to grow. Tehran has just joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, Tehran sells now about 7% of China's imported oil. Does the relationship between Iran and China make Israel nervous? Absolutely, absolutely. If you read Israeli media uh, or you talk to China, Israeli scholars, then you know China-Iran is definitely a big thing. Look, the four hundred billion was uh, you know a pie in the sky. I think we can agree about that. But there's no doubt that the China-Iran relationship is uh, growing. I think you had Jonathan Fulton uh, a while back who was also talking that you know the China's relationship with the Gulf is much more uh, significant than its relationship with Iran. Iranians also like to play it up, China, as to say, you know, we have an alternative. Uh, we don't care about uh, U.S. pressure. But there's no doubt that, uh, let's say, Iran needs China much more than China needs Iran. And China uses Iran as a, a bit of a boogeyman, okay, to show, well, you know, all the other Gulf monarchies are U.S. allies, so we're going to develop as a counterweight. Uh, developed relationship with Iran. But Israel is concerned not just about China-Iran relationship. You know, China is more prominent in the Middle East generally. 
So, for example, you have Chinese arms sales to the region. Okay, drones, for example, to Saudi Arabia, perhaps, and other other uh, players. We've even heard that maybe some Chinese drones ended up in the hands of the Houthis in Yemen, then who used them then against uh, Saudi Arabia. So, I think it's a concern for everybody else. But I think Israel, just like Saudi Arabia, just like Iran, maybe, just like any other country in the region. We understand that China is here to stay. So, you know, you have to you know, develop a relationship with China. Privately, I suppose, China, Israel relates its concerns to China about Iran, but it's not, it's not, in, the public, uh, not in the public sphere uh, as far yet. Now, you mentioned Liu Jianchao. Now, this is very interesting. We have a very, very seasoned, experienced diplomat in China, our ambassador there, Madam Irid Ben Abba. And I, the way I understand this, the, the threat component of the don't you dare and, uh, you know, disrupt your ties with us uh, was a little bit overblown, if I may say so. Uh, it, well, that was Axios reporting that, and Axios is one of the DC Beltway yeah, but, publications. So there's a lot of incentive for Axios, I think, to hype it up a little bit more maybe than it was. Also, but, but the, the fact is that that particular article by Axios was actually written by an Israeli reporter, Barak Ravid, actually, who has excellent sources within the prime minister's office. Uh, you know, kudos to him. But, you know, news websites need to, uh, you know, get uh, readership. And if you, if, you, if you read the entire article to the end, actually, there was a lot of positive things that Liu Jianchao told to uh, Ambassador Ben Abba. I suspect, and this is this may sound counterintuitive, it had more to do with Taiwan actually than uh, than anything else than than anything bilateral between Israel and China. I'll tell you why. First of all, Taiwan is a hot sector and getting hotter, unfortunately, not not to the benefit of Taiwan, but it is what it is. And secondly, you know, in April, this was uh, I don't know if I'm the only one who noticed this, but in April there was a call between uh, Lapid, Prime Minister Lapid and uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. And in the readout, in the Chinese readout, which is, it's usually, the Chinese readouts are usually more detailed than the ones on the Israeli side. Uh, Wang Yi talked about the, just like China Daily, China's relationship with everyone are blossoming, with Israel, with Iran, with the rest of the world. But then Wang Yi mentioned something. He thanked Israel for its sort of balanced and consistent approach to the Taiwan issue and the consistent one-China policy of Israel. So, you know, the, I think uh, the Chinese are, have identified that the U.S. pressure on its allies to do more about Taiwan is growing. And I think it's a way for China to warn Israel not to join the crowd. And I think Israel will not join the crowd on the Taiwan issue. I think, at least in the area of one-China policy, Israel has been very consistent. You know, it's interesting. If you look at Israel... China-Taiwan ties, then, okay, so Israel was established in May 48. In January, January 9, 1950, Israel recognized China, the People's Republic of China, okay? The first country in the Middle East, the, the seventh non-communist country to recognize the People's Republic of China. That was in January 1950. Before that, in March 49, the Republic of China that is now on Taiwan. But in March 49, Republic of China, the government of the Republic of China, was still controlling the mainland, recognized the young country, the young state of Israel. But Israel, 
like I said, our, you know, the founding fathers of Israel, you know, looked at China, did not reciprocate. So Israel, unlike the U.S., for example, never, never recognized Taiwan, never recognized the Republic of China. So in January 1950, Israel recognized the People's Republic of China. So I think it has, has more to do with, I mean, both bilateral ties, but also Taiwan. Shifting back to the, to the relationship between the United States and Israel, how do you foresee, you know, in, internal U.S. D- domestic dynamics kind of impacting on, on this relationship? Would there be any kind of significant change if, say, there's a shift to the Republicans, particularly, you know, kind of a, a quite right-wing Republican candidate in, in 2024, on Israel's relationship with China? Or is, it, or is there such a kind of level of unification across the aisle at the moment in the U.S. that that, internal, that, that kind of internal shift doesn't matter so much in this, in this case? So I'm not going to be so crazy to try to analyze U.S. politics. I'll leave it for uh, braver souls. Uh, but I think I think uh, U.S. policy towards China has is probably set out in stone. I mean, you know, you guys and everyone who's following this issue closely know that there are different voices in the U.S. when it comes to China. There's a lot of criticism, but I think Congress is you know dead set uh, against China, and this will drive the relationship. The, direction of policy, of uh, U.S. policy towards China. I don't see a change if a Republican administration comes to power. Maybe if the change will be, it will be more in a negative towards more aggressive posture towards China. So I don't think, uh, you know, the, the pressure, uh, the U.S. pressure on Israel to to sort of lower the temperature uh, of its relationship with China will, uh, will change. Uh, but I think this is actually, uh, it's an opportunity to raise another aspect. So, you know, we talked about the U.S. pressure on Israel, but that's not unique, right? I mean, the U.S. is pressuring all of its allies. What is different specifically, and another contributing factor to the, to the fact that, for example, Israel signed on that uh, declaration on Xinjiang, is the, is the new government in Israel. So even though it has already collapsed and we you know, another elections, but nevertheless, there was a big change because the previous prime minister, Netanyahu, was seen as very, very, very close to the Republican circles in the U.S. I mean, he and Trump were uh, uh, very close. And so this government, led by you know Bennett and Lapid, actually set out and quite regardless of China, set out from the beginning to repair the bilateral support of Israel in the U.S. Uh, and that, if that was, you know, in, in order to repair that, you know, to work better with the Democrats, not to put our all of our eggs in one basket. And if, if that means sort of putting a lid to our relationship with China, then uh, this is, uh, you know, this is the the price to pay. So it was also sort of internal Israeli considerations, quite unrelated to 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 the ties with China. But by the way, you know, it's not all gloomy, like I said. So, for example, last week, September eighth, Israel and China had their fourth or fifth bilateral dialogue, and one of the things uh, on the agenda was the free trade agreement. So Israel is negotiating, has been negotiating for the past, I think, six years, negotiating a, tra- a free trade agreement with China. And there's very good chance that this will be signed this year. Now, this is a big thing 
because uh, first of all, China itself does not have a lot of free trade agreements, by the way, this is interesting to note. And the current prime minister, Li Keqiang, specifically mentioned the free trade agreement with Israel in his uh, address after the two sessions, I think, last year. But for Israel, it's also very important because so far we have a free trade agreement with only one country in Asia, and that's South Korea. So this is a big thing uh, for Israel to sign. Now, the question is how it will be presented. Okay, so will Israel just go and sign a free trade agreement with China? You know, people in D.C. will have heart attacks. Perhaps it will be dressed up. Uh, because Israel, there are, there's a talk of Israel-Vietnam free trade deal. I don't think the negotiation has uh, is such an advanced state, but there is talk about this. So perhaps it can be presented as a package. Okay, Israel is signing free trade with, with China and Vietnam. Maybe this will be more you know palatable in Washington. Unlikely, I imagine. I think they'll see right <laughs> through that for a second. Um, listen, you've given me a taste of my own medicine here because one of the things that I do when I speak to students and, and to groups about China and Africa and China and the Global South is they I, I always say I want to leave you more confused than when we start because a lot of people come in with these binary narratives, good, bad, they've got all their minds made up and and, uh, and to some extent you've muddled the water for me in a big way. I can't really tell where we are. And again, that's a good thing because I think again it shows how complex this relationship is. But let's close our discussion just trying to give us a little bit of a forecast of where you think things are going in, in the near term. On the one hand, I'm hearing from you lots of big problems at the UN, lots of big concerns about Iran, pressure from the United States, real problems in the relationship, okay? Meddling into civil society, again, with the Jerusalem Post, that really upset quite a few people. You and I were in Israel together, and we spoke to a number of people who really were put off by that. At the same time, again... Not this is not a primary security relationship for the for the Israelis. There's a lot of economic benefit, a lot of trade potential that's there, and a lot of opportunities. So I'm confused again, but that's a good thing. I say that complimentarily. Where are we and where are we going? That's basically where we started the conversation. Based on my conversations with the Israeli policymakers, as much as I can have them, Israel is very clear that the U.S.-China relationship is going down fast. And this is the trend of our times, and no reversal is expected. And I think Israeli policymakers are also very clear, uh, rightly so, that Israel's primary relationship is with the United States. You know, security-wise, diplomatically-wise, this is uh, our main strategic relationship, even though, by the way, our main trading partner is the European Union and not the U.S., but nevertheless, uh, U.S. And there's a deep cultural relationship as well, people-to-people ties. Right, this deep cultural thing. And, you know, uh, President Biden visited Israel in July, I think. And, you know, Israel and the U.S. launched uh, U.S.-Israel strategic high-level dialogue on technology, okay? Which includes all the goodies that China would like to have, you know, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, even climate change. So this is also a way... I mean, this is a very early days. I mean, the, the, the statement was just put out, and now you have to flesh it out and set up you know, working teams in every area. But this is one way of the U.S. to sort of pull away the uh, Israeli technological sector, which is formidable, away from China. On the other hand, like the dialogue on free trade agreement shows, that Israel, just like any other country in the world, with the exception of very, very few cases, 
uh, does not want to give up its economic ties with China. And there's really no reason to, provided that you can, you know, control the risks, minimize the risks, not do crazy stuff, not, you know, do stuff on 5G. Then, you know, the, the problem is it's, it's not such a big issue and there's, there's no reason. I mean, nobody else is giving up its, uh, you know, their trading ties with China. Why, uh, why would Israel? So I, I think we will continue, uh, you know, leaning, leaning to the U.S., but having our foot also on the Chinese side too. So, so, so this, uh, this is actually interesting because I, I think if the current government would have stayed in power, I think they would probably be less cynical and I think that the connection with the U.S. would be better. I have no idea what will happen come November, okay? Fifth election in four years. If Netanyahu comes back, which looks pretty solid if you look at the polls, maybe Netanyahu will go back to the relationship with China as it used to be. I, you know, that's, that's a very big question, but really, Israeli politics are harder to predict than U.S. politics even, so I'm not going to try. Well, we could see a day where we have Netanyahu and Trump back in power again. My yes. goodness. Yes. <laughs> Brace yourself. Alexander Pevsner is an adjunct lecturer at the Lauder School of Government, Diplomacy and Strategy at Reichman University near Tel Aviv. And he's always one of the smartest guys in the room on Israel-China affairs. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us and for taking the time to kind of walk us through and confusing us. Again, that's a wonderful thing. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? So thank you for having me, uh, Eric Kobus. You know I'm a TikTok sensation, right? Yes, you look like a TikToker. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm I'm not on TikTok, but I'm everywhere else, I suppose. Okay. And what's your your Twitter handle if people want to follow you? A B Pevsner, uh, A B Pevsner on Twitter and LinkedIn, just my name. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Once again, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Kobus, what a treat for us to be able to speak with Alex, someone with his experience, his perspective. Again, it's interesting to look at Israel and compare it to other small countries. And on the one hand, as you pointed out, yes, Israel is indeed a small country by any measures, geographically, population-wise, okay. But it is not a small country in the classic definition. It's a very, very powerful small country. So the comparisons between, say, Uganda and Israel are, you know, that, that's strained at best. However, I'm curious to hear from you. What did you hear in the discussion with Alex that resonated with you in terms of the dilemma that a country like Israel has in its relations with China and managing its relations with the United States and those, say, in South Africa or other African countries? Well, I guess, you know, the, I guess the one, the one big issue is that, is that like these other countries, I think, you know, kind of compared to African countries, Israel has a lot more options. But I think one thing that is similar is that, that in a lot of ways, all of these different kind of development and economic growth, you know, priorities have to be filtered through a kind of a geo geopolitical calculus. You know, so, so obviously, Israel is a big tech sector, China has a big demand for tech, or like across a whole bunch of, of different fields. Plus, China also has a lot of opportunities to invest in, in high in high level tech. 
a lot of those options have to be kind of like taken off the table, you know, kind of because of geopolitical concerns. And we, we see very similar kind of issues involved in, you know, in many African countries, frequently on a much lower level, but like around internet provision, for example. You know, so, so it's not a situation where these countries can simply look for the best deal and then move ahead. You know, kind of they have to, like these these kind of what, what, what are in theory domestic development decisions end up having to be kind of reworked through a kind of a, a global geopolitical calculus. I also think there's an opportunity for smaller developing countries who, again, haven't always found their footing in terms of the framing and the language to use in order to push back against all of the major powers, the Chinese, the Europeans, the Americans, and to some extent even the Russians. And the Israelis in many ways have a confidence uh, that they've been able to do that, in part because of their very close relationship with both Europe and the United States. And so there might be an opportunity here to take some of the framing that Alex had and to bring that into, say, African or Middle Eastern or South American foreign ministries. For example, this idea that, again, don't make us choose. We're not going to sacrifice our economic relationship with China. Nobody would do that. That's crazy, okay? The way that he framed that, I thought that was very interesting. The other part is how the Israelis have welcomed in Chinese infrastructure builders and Chinese infrastructure contractors. And one has to think that if the United States was truly good at building infrastructure around the world, they would be competitive in Israel. And the fact that they're not competitive in Israel, to me, is really quite a sign. Okay, it's one thing not to be competitive in the DRC and Nigeria and frontier markets, or even here in Vietnam. It's another thing not to be competitive in Israel. And so that kind of took me by surprise that if the Americans with their whole PGII, B3W, whatever the acronym of the day is, want to compete in places like the Global South, and the fact that they're not even doing it in Israel, hmm, that, that kind of got me thinking a little bit. I don't know. But anyway, back to this question of the framing. It does strike me as there might be an opportunity to take some of the language and the structuring of the policy that the Israelis are doing and to bring it, at least parts of it, into other Global South, or at least Global South foreign ministries in their, in their positioning in the great power rivalry. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, kind of one of one of the things that I think plays interestingly into this issue is the the kind of broader issue of kind of anti-westernism. You know, because we've we've seen that, you know, around the around the Ukraine crisis, around the way that the way the, the way that kind of Chinese messaging in the global south, they frequently do lean into into a kind of a anti-Western animus, you know, kind of even like frequently those like in Africa, particularly that, you know, that that particular kind of view of, of, of viewing the West comes from a colonial history, a kind of a post-colonial new imperial history and general kind of pressure from Western institutions that, that kind of lead to a lot of resentment. And China knows that and leans into it. I think Israel is this interesting kind of like other example or like example of of a, a kind of a global south country and an asian country where the kind of connections the media connections and discourse connections to north america and europe are much stronger than in most most global south countries you know so so there it's a it becomes this interesting test case in terms of how talking points and and kind of like discourse power struggles between china and and the us looks you know, kind of like in in the global south, but but from a kind of from, from a, a very kind of from the perspective of a very specific kind of west non west relationship. You know, so so there, I think there's a lot to learn there in terms of in in terms of how this kind of messaging and counter messaging works. You know, kind of if you want to see 
the the success and failure of U.S. versus Chinese messaging in in a particular kind of non-Western society, Israel becomes this interesting kind of counterfactual kind of test case, you know, that stands in quite sharp contrast with many other global South countries. Uh, let's focus on two points going forward, at least for the next six to nine months. One is the apparent collapse of the JCPOA, that is the Iran nuclear talks. Uh, China's been involved in that. Obviously, that's a major concern to Israel. That is a security priority number one for the Israelis. That's going to be very interesting to watch the Chinese and how they manage this. And and, and again, that that, that China-Iran axis and that relationship is uh, very important to Israel. And then, of course, we have a change in government in coming in Israel again. What's that going to do for the China relationship? Probably not too much. Uh, but we also have to keep an eye on China's expanding footprint in the Middle East and how that may make the Israelis nervous. But at the same time, the Israelis, too, are expanding their presence in the Middle East through the Abraham Accords. There's now new direct flights to Saudi Arabia, inconceivable a few years ago. And obviously, the United Arab Emirates sits in the middle of all this. So let's just kind of wrap it up, Kobus, in terms of where you think this relationship is going and in terms of China's broader presence in the Middle East, uh, how significant do you think Israel is going to be going forward in the next year or so? I mean, Israel is always going to be significant, um, you know, among others because of its complexities and, and because it, it is this, this kind of, you know, has such a strong, like fundamentally strong kind of connection to the United States. Um, but I think it will also, the, the interactions between Saudi Arabia, Iran and Israel in, in the region and the way that China tries to kind of play into that may well, you know, they'll definitely be important, but I wonder if they might also end up limiting Chinese influence there. You know, simply because China is such a newcomer to the area, it's, you know, it, it's beyond trade. China doesn't necessarily bring that much to the table. You know, kind of compared to it, it does it. It won't play the kind of security role that the United States is playing in, in the region, for example. You know, so so you you know, so I think at the moment, particularly in relation to oil trade, it's it's a it's a really kind of red hot kind of area. Once oil starts, once the influence of oil starts kind of dissipating because of climate mitigation, you know, kind of over the next twenty years or so, some of that might fade, you know, and then and then we're looking probably at a completely different kind of calculus about, you know, kind of in in the region in relation to Chinese power. Okay, let's leave the conversation there. If this is an issue that you are interested in, I highly recommend that you follow Alex's Twitter feed. Also, I'm going to put a link to Tuvia Gehring's Twitter feed. He's at the think tank INSS in Jerusalem as well, an excellent Israel-China scholar. Uh, this is a topic we follow very closely in our daily coverage in the newsletter, especially how Israel's relationship with China and the broader Middle East kind of play in that dynamic. So fascinating. It's so complicated and confusing. I wasn't joking when I said I'm leaving the conversation with Alex more confused than when I started. That's a healthy place to be because these are incredibly complicated relationships that can't be boiled down into simple, well, is it good or is it bad? So we like the fact that if you're confused and I'm confused, that's a good place to be because there's a lot of complexity in this relationship. So we'll be back again next week with another episode. Again, this is the 
the first few episodes of this new China Global South podcast. For regular listeners of our Africa podcast, the format is very similar, the dynamic is very similar, the topics are more broad, but we would love to hear what you think. Give us any feedback. You can reach me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com or kobus, kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. We would love to get your feedback, good, bad, and ugly, by the way. All of it is welcome. And also, again, if you'd like to subscribe to the work that we're all doing, we have a team of nine editors now around the world who are putting together these amazing reports in Arabic, in French, and also in English. Sign up at chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. That'll do it. We'll be back again next week. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thanks for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com.